Section 38 of Great Men and Famous Women, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Great Men and Famous Women, Volume 1, by Charles F. Horn. Gustavus Adolphus, 1594-1632, by Hjalmar Hjorth Boyesen. There is a theory which has much currency nowadays, that the great man, being a product of his century, exerts an influence upon his age which is but vanishing, compared to the influence which the age exerts upon him. The great man is, according to this view, personally of small account, except in so far as the tendencies and ideas which are fermenting in the age find their expression in him. He does not so much shape the events as he is shaped and moulded by them. There is scarcely a hero to be found in all the annals of history who is better qualified to refute this theory than the Swedish king, Gustavus Adolphus. It would be futile to assert, of course, that he was an isolated phenomenon, who sprang like Jonah's luxuriant gourd out of the arid sands of the desert. No, he had deep and intricate roots in the past of his race and in the soil of his fatherland. But yet, how far are all the influences which we can trace, from accounting for the forceful energy, the clear-sighted sagacity, and the dominant genius of the man. As far as we can judge at this distance, his personality was the mightiest element that entered into the denouement of that bloody world drama, the Thirty Years' War. Had he been other than he was, had he been a man of less heroic mould, it would seem that Protestantism must have perished in Central Europe, or been confined at least to England and the Scandinavian North. The rights of conscience and individual judgment, for which Luther and his co-reformers had fought so valiantly, would then have succumbed to the power of authority, as embodied in the papacy and the catholic league and germany after its mighty effort at release would have lapsed back into the middle ages to few men the opportunity is offered to exercise such a far-reaching influence upon the history of mankind but fewer still are those who see its full significance and seeing it seize it and without one look behind march into the storm and stress of world-shaping events gustavus adolphus was born december ninth fifteen ninety four he was the son of King Charles the Ninth of Sweden, and the grandson of the renowned Gustavus Vasa. He was a precocious child, and it is told, though it appears rather incredible, that at the age of twelve he spoke Latin, French, German, Dutch, and Italian with great fluency, besides having a superficial acquaintance with Polish and Russian. There can be no doubt, however, that he was well taught, and that he possessed a remarkable facility in acquiring languages. For all that, he was far from being a bookish boy, in riding, fencing, and all chivalrous accomplishments, he took a lively interest, and exhibited much skill. It was in stormy times that his boyhood fell, Sweden being at that time involved in frequent wars, and his father, in order to train him in the duties of a military commander, took him early into his camp and made him share his campaigns. Many of the famous captains of that day who had fought in the Low Countries and in France were made welcome at the Swedish court and the favorite pastime of the young gustavus was to question them concerning the battles sieges and military exploits in which they had been engaged when charles the ninth died in sixteen eleven gustavus being then seventeen years old was declared to be of age and succeeded to the throne there was need of an able and resolute man to cope with the many difficulties which sprang up round about him in the first place there was one war with denmark already raging the strained relations with russia and poland threatened to precipitate two more norway which was then united with denmark under the same king was also jealous of sweden and the norwegian peasantry destroyed at kringelen in guldbrandsdal an army of scottish mercenaries under the command of colonel sinclair which was marching to the relief of gustavus 
the danes had occupied two important swedish cities kalmar and elfsborg and being determined to utilize their advantages to the full repelled all overtures for peace it was of no avail that gustavus renounced his title of king of the laplanders the assumption of which by his father had been one of the causes of the war christian the fourth of denmark continued to push hostilities with unflagging vigor and several battles were fought with varying fortunes in sixteen twelve he set sail with a fleet of thirty-six vessels for stockholm intending to capture the city the swedish fleet being much inferior in numbers was forced to retire under shelter of the fortress of waxholm which guards the access to the capital in this dire dilemma gustavus strained every nerve to avert the threatened disaster with a small force chiefly of dalecarlians he marched day and night and hastened to waxholm in the hope of surprising the danish fleet which had been detained by adverse winds but the enemy being probably informed of his approach saw that their opportunity for capturing the capital was gone and returned again to their own coast negotiations were now resumed and peace was concluded in sixteen thirteen the danes were to surrender kalmar immediately and elfsborg at the end of six years the swedes agreeing to pay a war indemnity of one million thalers the war with russia which gustavus had inherited from his father had of late been in a state of suspension the swedes had occupied a large amount of russian territory in which were several strong fortresses in the confusion which reigned as to the succession after the extinction of the ancient house of rurik there was a capital chance of fishing in troubled waters a strong party in russia desired to elect a swedish prince as sovereign and actually sent an embassy to stockholm to offer the throne to charles philip a younger brother of gustavus but the king did not favor this plan for four years he continued the war and secured important advantages but what was more valuable than territorial gains he acquired a wide experience in strategy in the conduct of campaigns a habit of dealing promptly with large questions and a sharpened judgment of men in february sixteen seventeen the treaty of peace was signed russia ceding to sweden a large territory on the east of the baltic gustavus was now in a position to prosecute with greater energy the war with poland sigismund the third of poland was the only son of king john the third of sweden and was therefore as a scion of the ancient royal house the legitimate heir to the swedish throne but in the first place he was a catholic and in the second place the house of vasa had by force of arms and with the support of the people successfully asserted its right to the crown which gustavus i had won after repeated extensions of the armistice which by common consent prevailed the king of sweden resumed hostilities in july sixteen twenty one and the war raged with varying success until september sixteen twenty nine when another armistice was concluded for six years the chief result of this exhausting warfare was the stipulation which was agreed to that liberty of conscience should be granted to protestants and catholics and that the commerce between poland and sweden was declared free the renown of these wars two of which had been brought to a triumphant issue spread far over europe and the protestant princes of germany became aware that there was a great military captain of their own faith in the scandinavian north they were at that time sorely oppressed the success of the imperial arms under tilly and wallenstein seeming to threaten the very existence of the reformed faith the emperor ferdinand the second was carrying everything with a high hand after the defeat of king christian the fourth of denmark who with more courage than success had undertaken to champion the protestant cause it was in this desperate strait that all eyes turned toward the young king of sweden an appeal was sent to him for aid in the name of their common religion and gustavus after a brief hesitation accepted the call 
he had long watched with deep concern the war of devastation by which wallenstein and the scarcely less terrible tilly were seeking to destroy the fruits of the reformation and it is said that he had a clear presentiment that sooner or later he would be drawn into the struggle leaving his domestic affairs in the hands of his friend the chancellor oxenstiern he embarked in june sixteen thirty with a force of but fifteen thousand men for germany and landed on midsummer day on the island of usedom on the coast of pomerania the emperor ferdinand professed to be much amused when he heard that gustavus adolphus had invaded his dominions so we have got another kingling on our hands he exclaimed mockingly he was far from foreseeing what trouble he was to have for eighteen years to come in getting that kingling and his troops off his hands gustavus was the first to step upon the german soil at the disembarkation and in the sight of all his army he fell upon his knees and prayed for the blessing of god upon the vast enterprise which had been confided to him as he arose from his prayer he seized a spade and began instantly the work upon the entrenchments of the camp if his troops were few in number it is not to be denied that they were excellent in quality many were hardened veterans from the king's earlier campaigns among his recently acquired mercenaries there was a scotch brigade from which he drew many of his best officers we hear much during the following years of hepburn seaton leslie mackay and monroe whose names betray their caledonian origin you would have supposed now that the protestant princes having secured the aid of gustavus would have made haste to identify themselves with his cause and to reinforce him with money and troops but strange to relate no sooner had he landed than they began to grow afraid of him and to ask themselves whether they might not after all be able to make more tolerable terms with the emperor by the sacrifice of their religion than with this foreign invader who if he was victorious might dictate his own terms had they not in other words jumped from the frying-pan into the fire the two princes who had hitherto been the most prominent champions of protestantism in germany though both half-hearted and pusillanimous shufflers were gustavus's brother-in-law the elector of brandenburg and the elector of saxony they were now doing their best to wriggle out of their obligations and by a shameful neutrality avert the emperor's displeasure but they had reckoned without their host as they supposed that gustavus would lend himself to such a scheme the reply which he gave to herr von wilmersdorf who had been sent to him by the elector to urge an armistice was refreshingly plain while the argument which accompanied it was completely unanswerable when nevertheless the elector continued to resort to shilly-shallying and all sorts of ambiguous tactics gustavus lost his patience marched his army to the gates of berlin and compelled him to make his choice of party once for all the treaty of alliance was then signed on the elector's part reluctantly and with a heavy heart for these two brothers-in-law were so vastly different that it was scarcely to be expected that they would be congenial gustavus though he was not without personal ambition was fired with noble zeal for the protestant cause and believed it worthy of any sacrifice however great while the elector was only bent on saving his own precious skin and extricating himself with the least possible damage from the dangerous situation in which he had been caught with the same promptness with which he had brought his brother-in-law of brandenburg to terms gustavus forced the hand of the elector of saxony who now overcame his scruples and sent him the needed reinforcements an imperial army of forty thousand men under the command of an italian adventurer named torquato conti had been sent against him immediately on his landing in pomerania but no battle had been fought and beyond laying waste the country the imperialists had so far accomplished nothing the emperor who predicted that the snow king would melt under the rays of the imperial sun became alarmed at his successes and selected tilly to stay his southward advance 
this able and experienced general promptly assumed the command of the forces of the catholic league and in order to strike terror into the hearts of the protestant princes sacked and pillaged the city of magdeburg in lower saxony giving it over without restraint to devastation and ruin by the brutal soldiery the horrors which were here enacted beggar description and leave a hideous stain upon the page of history tilly himself in announcing his success to the emperor wrote since the destruction of troy and jerusalem never has such a siege been seen gustavus had indeed come too late to relieve magdeburg but the report of the unspeakable atrocities which that unhappy city had witnessed fired his generous heart with wrath and an eager determination to punish a general so devoid of humanity and the opportunity was soon to present itself advancing rapidly into saxony he met tilly on the plains of breitenfeld near leipzig september seventh sixteen thirty one and not only defeated him but utterly annihilated his army scattering it like dust before the storm he was now until a new army could be raised master of all germany nothing apparently could have hindered him from marching on vienna and dictating to the emperor his own terms of peace it has been and is yet a matter of speculation why gustavus did not relentlessly follow up the results of this great victory instead of going into winter quarters and affording ferdinand and the discomfited princes of the league a chance of recovering from their utter demoralization the answer is no doubt that he did not feel himself strong enough to lay siege to vienna without covering his rear and securing his base of supplies he had always like the good general he was been careful to keep open a possible line of retreat for the moment he was indeed irresistible at merseburg two thousand imperialists were cut to pieces cities opened their gates to receive him the protestant population in their ecstasy at his victories were ready to worship him as a demigod proceeding southward to nuremberg and munich he was met again by tilly at the river lech where a brief battle was fought gustavus was again victorious and tilly lost his life this feat of crossing the lech in the face of a hostile force is by military experts regarded as the greatest strategic feat of gustavus in the meanwhile the emperor had not been idle there was but one man whose name was potent enough to summon an army adequate for so perilous a situation and that man was albrecht von wallenstein he was himself too fully aware of his preciousness and the terms which he exacted of ferdinand were hard not to say extortionate ferdinand the second however had no choice but to accept them it was not long before gustavus became aware that wallenstein with an army which seemed to have risen out of the ground was moving in his rear resolved apparently to cut him off from his communication with sweden he had no alternative then but to return northward to face this new enemy on the field of lutzen in saxony they met november sixth sixteen thirty two a thick mist covered the battlefield and both armies tarried with the attack in the hope that it would lift toward noon however gustavus made a brief address to his soldiers and knelt in prayer before them whereupon all sang luther's hymn our god he is a fortress strong then the signal was given for the attack the army of gustavus including his german allies numbered from twenty to twenty five thousand and the imperialists about thirty thousand the king who suffered from an imperfectly healed wound which he had received in the polish war found it painful to wear a cuirass and on the morning of the day of lutzen refused to put it on god is my armor he said and mounted his horse it was this sublime confidence in divine providence which led him perhaps to expose himself overmuch he led the attack in person before the battle was far advanced a report reached him that his left wing was wavering with prompt resolution he started across the field but mistaking the direction of the fog found himself in the midst of a detachment of imperial cuirassiers a pistol shot pierced his arm but he still pressed on 
growing faint from pain and loss of blood he turned to one of the german princes who accompanied him and said cousin lead me out of this tumult for i am hurt but scarcely had he spoken when a second shot hit him between the soldiers and he fell from his horse dead the rumor instantly spread through the swedish army that the king had been taken prisoner the troops rushed like an avalanche upon the imperialists who wavered and gave way in the end the victory was claimed by both sides the advantage remaining however with the swedes gustavus adolphus was a man of handsome appearance tall of stature and of most impressive presence he was hot-tempered but at the same time kindly generous and affable he possessed all the qualities required of a military leader and has justly been accounted one of the world's greatest generals he was thirty-eight years old at the time of his death having no son he was succeeded on the swedish throne by his daughter christina end of section thirty-eight and end of great men and famous women volume one by charles f horn